Welcome to the Hills. All of you watching online or in person at North Richmond Hills, West Fort Worth, or Keller campuses. And happy Mother's Day. What a wonderful day to celebrate. And we will in just a moment. But first, I want to remind you that next Sunday is also a very important day for our church. It is our renew offering. Uh, we're believing that we will uh, give over $1 million away because of your generosity next Sunday in the name of Jesus to help people in our city and around the world. So be praying about how God can use you for that offering. And also a reminder, in our series, Let's Talk About Mental Health, next Sunday, I will deal with the topic of suicide. So I want you to be prepared for that. And please be praying for me as I prepare. But today is a beautiful day. We celebrate grandmothers and mothers and foster mothers and all of you that are pouring into the next generation. But I need some help today, okay? Because I'm in some hot water in my family. You see, I try not to use this platform to promote my family or personal agendas, but I made an exception last fall because I became a grandfather for the very first time. My daughter gave birth to a beautiful little girl, and I showed her picture, Sadie James Hamilton. And so uh, I just figured, well, that's it. I won't do that again. Well, this spring, my youngest son, Matthew, and his precious wife, Jill, gave birth to a little boy. I didn't mention it. I didn't show a picture. I didn't think anybody would mind. No one would even notice. Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> and so help me out here and please welcome Carter James Ashley into the world. This is my first grandson. Now, Carter James is about six weeks old. And the first three weeks of his life, that boy did not sleep. And his mother and father were exhausted. And they would call us and say, is this what it's like to be a parent? Are we just going to be tired all the time? And we said with great compassion, yes, that's what it's like. I saw a post the other day. You can appreciate it. It said, being an adult is pretty easy. You just feel tired all the time and tell people about how tired you are, and they tell you how tired they are. That about sums it up. But it seems to me these past few years, have gotten particularly exhausting, especially for those who work in people-helping professions. I'm talking about teachers and school administrators, doctors and nurses, law enforcement officers and first responders, and even pastors are reporting burnout at record levels. In fact, I don't mean to be an alarmist, but the church is facing a great challenge because the men and women who are entering ministry doesn't come close to the number of men and women that are leaving. Just in the last eight years, the percentage of pastors who said, I'm burnt out and thinking about quitting has grown from 11% to 20, I'm excuse me, to 40%. And so we're in this series talking about mental health. And there's one group of people that I think might be more overwhelmed than any. And they're our most important caretakers and people helpers of all. I'm talking about our mothers. Let me tell you why I suspect that. To prepare for this series last January, I asked you to take a survey. What mental health challenges have you had in the last 12 months? 
Over 2,500 of you responded. About two to one, women to men. You said in the last 12 months, the number one mental health challenge you faced is anxiety, about 70%. At about 60%, second was depression. And at 58% of our respondents, third was burnout and stress. But here's what's interesting. We did a breakdown by age group. And among people in our church, 30 to 39, the number one mental health challenge they said they're facing is burnout and stress. The average was 58%, but that age group, 82%. And right now at every campus, there are some young moms nodding their head. Welcome to my world. I've got some in diapers. I've got some in school that told me the night before that the project was due. I've got doctor's appointments and practices to get to. I've got an unending pile of laundry and a house that just cannot stay clean. And I've got my own job to do, and I am exhausted. I think it's hard for some of us who haven't been in their shoes to completely appreciate what that feels like. So I want to begin my teaching day by letting you hear from a mother. Uh, A new mother in our church named Tatiana Taylor. Here's her backstory. Tatiana was from France. She came to our country. She met an American boy named Zach. They got married. They got pregnant, had a precious little baby. And then a few months later, Tatiana gets pregnant again with twins. So she has three babies under 18 months. She has no family or friends because they've just moved to Texas. And she's drowning. She actually goes online to look for some help. That's how she found our church and some of our resources. And I'm thrilled to tell you that last fall, Tatiana was baptized into Christ. But we asked her to be candid and honest. What was it like those early days as a mom? Was it as overwhelming as it sounds like it could have been. Listen as she shares with us very transparently. That's super cool. I'm in a rainbow car and rainbow shoe. You did? Uh-huh. Awesome. I want my phone. Yeah, hi. High five. Yes. Being a mom, it's one word, but there are like 3,000 words behind it. And I was faced with doing all of this for literally three kids under, under 18 month old. Not only do you have to meet their needs, but there are so much more around it, plus there's you. And in this case, it was me. And I just, once the twin were born, the pregnancy was already difficult, but once they came, it was just like, wow, okay, so I gotta keep them alive. My husband is gone 10 to 12 hours a day, six six days a week, and you forget yourself, and you don't necessarily see yourself go down. I would wake up and I would already be like, oh no, like, oh wow. I was drained before starting and I had to sleep in the twins room because it was just becoming really difficult to, for him to wake up at four in the morning and have the twins in the room. And it was this vicious circle of, you're just exhausted. Postpartum depression, that's not really something. You know about it and now, actually now, I see it more on social media or doctor offices than I did five years ago. But they don't tell you, hey, mama, take care of yourself now, and you'll thank me later. 
and I started feeling this thing in my belly. I was like, okay, this is, you know, I, I didn't say it was burnout and depression. I didn't have words on it. And then I started reading, I started, you know, looking for help, for therapists, for like information. And if you don't take care of yourself during your pregnancy, it can only lead to being completely burned out. Because for years, you're like going through the motion and the flow and it's gonna be okay. Or, you know, it's me, I'm the problem. I should not be that way. But mentally, there's something that breaks. And that's what happened when I was raising my babies for, yeah, for like, I struggled for three years. My relationship with God during that time. So I will say that when I was pregnant with the twins, I was like, why? Like literally I was praying in bed crying. I was like, why did you do this to me? I was like, we can't afford it. We're alone. I have no family. And I knew from the beginning it was gonna be really difficult. And so I was really mad. But then at the same time, it's like, whoa, two babies, you know, you're blessed. I really wanted to get back into this, which I wasn't doing before. And I feel like he called me to him through my struggles, even though that was awful. There was something to learn, but you don't, it's hard to understand and learn when you're doing it it's always after you're like wow i walk that much i run that much and that's what you know i'm looking back at all the steps i took and i was like oh that's why you did that and then i was like thank you and now i'm crying because i'm grateful that i went through it but it was definitely uh, a really difficult uh, relationship and now i think I, now i feel like i reached the peace i needed with my faith and I bring it on to my kids so they can hopefully keep it and not do like I did, you know. Yeah. Did I answer the question? <laughs> can we thank her for her honesty? I saw a lot of moms nodding their heads as she was talking. It reminded me of a story I heard a preacher tell years ago. There was a sweet older woman in his church that just loved to take care of people. And there... And she was aware of a younger family uh, whose husband was out of town on business, and she got word that the mom was sick. He said, before cell phone, she called on the landline and said, honey, I hear you're not doing well. Oh, my head is killing me. My back is hurting. I can barely get out of bed. The kids are going crazy. They haven't eaten yet. The house is a wreck. And this dear sweet older woman said, honey, you just stay in bed. I'm coming straight over. I'm going to fix them some breakfast. I am going to do the laundry. I am going to pick up the house. Now, when is Sam going to get back? Sam? I don't know anybody named Sam. The elder woman said, oh my goodness, I have called the wrong number. I am so sorry. <laughs> and after a long silence, a plaintive voice said, are you still coming over? <laughs> now here's the thing. I do not believe it is possible to live a life without stress. I cannot give you as a pastor three easy steps, do these things, and your life will never be stressful. I do believe it's possible to live a life and a lifestyle that does not lead to burning out. So we're talking about mental health. Today we're going to talk about burnout. And we're going to start the conversation by looking at someone in the Bible who did. So you can be finding 1 Kings 19 in your Bibles. I'm going to give you the backstory. There are few people in Scripture more significant than a prophet named Elijah. Now he shows up in 1 Kings 17. And he confronts and he rebukes wicked King Ahab. 
who allowed his wife Jezebel to import Baal worship into Israel and lead the people away from God. And Elijah announces there's going to become a devastating drought. And then he's got to go into hiding for several years because Ahab wants to kill him. He spends a lot of time completely by himself out in the wilderness and then in a pagan country away from his people. Now, God manifested himself in some miraculous ways during that time, but the whole time he's hiding, Baal worship is going on in Israel as strong as ever. In chapter 18, God says, it's time to bring this to a head. And so, Elijah comes back and basically says to Ahab, we need to have a Super Bowl, a battle of the gods. You get your best prophets, we're going to meet on Carmel, and we're going to settle this. And so they all meet together with the understanding that whichever God calls down fire from heaven is the true God. The prophets of Baal dance all day long, and nothing happens. Elijah simply speaks a word. Fire comes down. All the people fall on their face. Yahweh is God. Elijah orders the Baal prophets to be killed. It is a humiliating defeat for Baal and for Ahab and for Jezebel. And you might assume after a victory like that, Elijah would be beyond intimidation. But the heroes in the Bible are real people. And as we're about to read, Elijah was real tired. Chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, and now he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Wow. How did a mighty man of God get to this place? By the way, aren't you thankful that God knows which of our prayers not to answer? First time God said no to a request of Elijah. Elijah said, send rain. Don't send rain. Call down fire. Every time God said yes, Elijah said, take my life. God said no. But how did he get here? How did he go from calling down fire to losing his fire? How did a prophet of I am get to the place where he said, I quit? And if you're there, and if that's how you've been feeling lately, just exhausted and mentally tired, maybe some of the things that factored into his exhaustion will help you understand your own. You see, I think one factor was that Elijah had lived in extended isolation for a long time. For several years, he has basically lived life as a loner, severed from any faith community. And no one can stay mentally and spiritually healthy without connection. Not even Jesus. More about that in a moment. I think another factor in his burnout was unmet expectation. You see, Elijah had dedicated his life to one go, the eradication of Baal worship in Israel. And perhaps he assumed after Carmel, I have finally accomplished the mission of my life. And then he realized he hadn't. And exhilaration turned to exhaustion. Ahab and Jezebel were still on the throne, still trying to kill him. All those people that said Yahweh is God, they went home and got their Baal idols right back out. 
That happens. You have a goal for your life. You have a dream for your life to get the dream job that doesn't turn out to be so dreamy. Or to have children and you find out you can't. Or you have kids and you are going to have the perfect family. But you wound up with yours. (laughs) Because here's the thing. Nobody gets the life they wanted. We all get the life we got. And I think one more thing. You contributed and fueled his burnout. And I'd call it meaning deprivation. He said, I've had enough. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Here's what he was saying. God, what is the point? Tell me how my life has mattered. I've done everything the way you wanted me to do it. And what difference has it made? You see, the absence of purpose always leads to the presence of exhaustion and despair. When our kids were little, our oldest, Michael, was a toddler, and he was fascinated with all the pots and pans that Jamie kept in a cabinet. We had child locks on all the doors that would lead to dangerous things, but she didn't lock up that door. And every day, he would waddle in and pull out every pot and pan on the kitchen floor, and she'd put them all back up. And he'd pull them back out, and she'd put them all back up. We walk in one morning, and every pot and pan is in the kitchen floor. And she just throws up her arm and says, what's the point? I'm going to put all these back up, and he's going to pull them back out. And I thought, well, honey, look at from his perspective. He's thinking, what's the point? I pull them all out, and she just keeps putting them back out. <laughs> and the reality is, you just keep doing the next thing that has to get done, and you find yourself wondering, Is this making any difference? Does this really matter? And all of us spend a lot of time in places where it's hard to discern if where you are is very important. But the God of heaven is willing to meet us where we are, not where we wish we were. And God meets Elijah, not with frustration, but with a strategy for his regeneration. So notice verse 5. Then Elijah lay down under the bush and fell asleep. And all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat. For the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank and strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? God says, present yourself. We need to have a conversation. So he goes outside and and this huge, powerful wind comes in. But God was not in the wind. And then there's a mighty earthquake that shakes everything, but God was not in the earthquake. And then there was this devastating fire, but God wasn't in the fire. And then God appeared in a whisper. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, 
I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus, and when you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu king over Israel, and anoint Elisha to seed you as prophet. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. Just find it so interesting the way the Lord met his burnout prophet. Not with a lecture, but with a perspective and a purpose. Because God knows how to start fires, even in the hearts of people that are burnt out. And let me say it again. You're going to be disappointed if you hope this sermon is going to teach you how to live life without stress. That's not possible. It is possible to live a life without burning out. And if that's where you are right now, you just feel mentally exhausted. Maybe there is some wisdom today from the way God dealt with Elijah that could bless you. And here's the first piece of wisdom. Pace your race. The first thing God told Elijah wasn't get up and pray, but get up and eat and then go back to sleep. That God knew in that moment Elijah didn't need a rebuke. He needed some rest and refreshment because that man was physically and emotionally fried. So God took care of his physical needs so that Elijah would be in a position to receive some spiritual direction. That God knew until I get him some rest and some refreshment, he's not in a place where he can hear what I need to tell him. You know who understood this with Jesus? Look with me in Mark 6. The apostles returned to Jesus from their ministry tour and told him all that they had done and taught and Jesus said, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. You know what Jesus is doing? Jesus is understanding they can't sustain this place. It's not a question of whether or not they're doing good things. They're doing good things. But they can't sustain this pace and stay mentally and spiritually healthy. You cannot divorce your physical health from your mental health. Simply not getting enough sleep is keeping your body from regenerating and replacing the serotonin and other chemicals that you need for your mental well-being. So last January, I did a series called Soulful. Remember, is it well with your soul? I said, 100% of you are going to agree we need the series. 98% of you are going to agree with every suggestion I have to take care of your soul. But my fear is that most of you aren't going to do it. Three months later, was I right or was I wrong? You see, I believe there's a reason for the surge in mental health challenges going on in our nation right now. It is the body's normal reaction to being told it must adapt to an abnormal way of living. 
We are asking the body God designed to live in a way God never intended for it to live, and the body's rebelling on us. We have accepted as normal a way of doing life that is toxic to our soul, and the number one way that is getting manifested is our mental health. And nothing's going to change until the important becomes more important than the urgent. You are going to have to go on a fast from going so fast. Because there is only one cure for an unsustainable pace. And that is a sustainable pace. So you're going to have to, for the sake of your spiritual and mental health, make some hard counter-cultural choices. Like sleep more and eat better and get off screens as much as you're on them and go outside and enjoy God's creation and spend more time with people and make space every week in your life for Sabbath for time to rest and be with God. Because you see, when you pace your race, you make space for God to whisper. God is not going to scream to get your attention because you're going so hard. God's going to wait till you slow down, and he'll meet you there. So you need to pace your race. Here's something else we can learn about how God dealt with Elijah, and that is make community a priority. You see, Elijah's burnout was fostered by two false assumptions, that he was all alone and that he must do it all alone. He said, I'm the only one left. And God said, well, actually, I got 7,000 people in Israel just as devoted to me as you are. You see, God has never created a single human being to be self-sufficient. And so it's significant. Elijah would spend the rest of his life among his people, not in hiding. He would spend the rest of his life in Israel. He would spend the rest of his life with his community of faith, hanging out with schools of prophets, and significantly with an apprentice. God said, you anoint Elisha, and Elisha would spend every day of the rest of Elijah's life with his mentor. By the way, this is how Jesus lived in intentional community. If any single person has ever lived that could say, I can stay spiritually and mentally healthy just with God only, it would have been Jesus. And that's not how he lived. He intentionally surrounded his life with people. He even allowed someone to help him carry his cross. Think about that. Maybe that's what Paul had in mind when he said in Galatians, share each other's burdens. And in this way, obey the law of Christ. We have got to stop settling for artificial community. It's not working. Pastor, I have 3,000 friends on Facebook. No, you don't. 
You have 3,000 people you have information about. You don't have 3,000 friends. You see, a post will never replace a presence. Did you hear about the controversy recently at Vanderbilt University? Two deans have been suspended for an email they sent to their students. It was right after some shootings that took place at Michigan State University. And the purpose of the email was to provide comfort and support to the student body. Until it was learned that the email was generated by artificial intelligence. The deans didn't reflect and share their own hearts. They just told a computer to write something. And we're fooling ourselves if we think that kind of community can keep us healthy. It's one reason why groups are so important. And by the way, I'm just going to step on your toes. I understand because of COVID why we had to isolate. It's time to come back together. We have community groups. We have rooted groups. We have gathered groups. We have radical mentoring groups. And let's get real. Uh, vulnerable. The slowest group to come back has been our 20s and our 30s. And I get it. With kids, it is really hard. But I'm going to challenge you. There is simply no screen that can replace the power of being in the presence of people who are together inviting the Holy Spirit to come and join them. And that's what we need. God never intended for you to be the only person who takes care of you. Make community a priority. And here's one more thing. And by the way, I'm preaching to myself. Of all the mental health challenges on our survey, I would tell you the one that's been the hardest for me has been burnout. And so what I need to hear maybe more than anything else is let God own the throne. You see, I'm a recovering controlaholic. I was before I became a pastor. I have always struggled with thinking it all depends on me, that it's my responsibility to fix everything that's wrong, and that if I just plan and work enough, people and circumstances will turn out the way I want. And it is an exhausting way to live because the universe consistently refuses to recognize my sovereignty. Like Elijah, I have to find that place where God gets bigger and I get smaller. Listen to the psalmist. The Lord has made the heavens his throne. From there he rules over everything. Thing. Some of us are wearing ourselves out trying to do God's job. See, I can tell you as a recovering controlaholic what keeps me exhausted. People. You people just won't do things the way I want you to do things. How many of us right now could admit I am totally fried because there's someone in my life I love and they just won't let me fix them. 
And here's what I've learned. That I am susceptible to burnout as long as I make controlling outcomes my job. I don't own a throne. I cannot control outcomes. All I can control is input. All I can control is my decision each day to try to love God and love people. And that's all God asks. I've had the opportunity to drive across and even walk across one of our nation's landmarks, the Golden Gate Bridge, famous for its orange color. You know that bridge is never really finished. It is constantly being painted. There's a crew of over 30 people. You never see them or notice them, but they are always painting the bridge. You see, there's high salt content in the air, and if there they, that part of that bridge is unsealed by the paint, then it corrodes the metal that leads to structural damage that could lead to disaster. And so they're always painting the bridge. Nobody notices. Nobody applauds. Nobody says, thank you. I'm sure it's monotonous. I'm sure at times they wonder, what's the point? And that's how we feel sometimes. God, I'm just, I'm doing my best. I'm trying to live like you told me to live. Doesn't seem to be making any difference. But listen, my job is not to control outcomes. I don't own a throne. My job is to represent Christ wherever I am. And as long as that's my job, my life will always have a purpose. And a meaning. Amen. And here's the thing. I don't have to know how my life is making a difference. I just have to trust. There are 7,000 others that you don't even know about. That God is using your life to impact Brian Chappell, a pastor in a recent book, said his wife was changing the diaper on one of their babies. She was an accomplished pianist, and she was saying to a friend, these hands used to play Mozart. And the friend said, maybe these hands are diapering the next Mozart. You see, here's the thing. The world only needs one Savior. And it's not you. God owns a throne. Jesus saves the world. Let go of control. Hold on to the truth. God is in control. And here the psalmist. Let all that I am wait quietly before God. For my hope is in Him. Oh, my people, trust in Him at all times. Pour out your heart to Him. For God is our refuge. So that's what we're going to do right now. In a moment, I want to pray over the mothers and grandmothers among us. 
But right now, I want you to start the prayer. Would you bow your head and pour out your heart to God? I'd like you to honestly identify a part of your life that is just wearing you out. It's exhausting. And maybe God is wanting you to give it to him today and say, stop trying to control it and just surrender it. So be honest right now to God and tell him some part of your life that has just kept you tired. And what I want to do right now is I want to bless the mothers among us. If you're a mother, a grandmother, a foster mother, would you stand up wherever you are right now? I just want to bless you. Please stand. So, Father, I'm just praying over all of these precious women right now and thanking you for what they do. What they do is so hard. And most days no one says thank you. And it's easy, I'm sure, many days, God, for them to think, did I make a difference today? It was all I could do to survive today. So, God, I pray that they will experience your favor today. That you are so proud of them, not because of their competence or their efficiency, but just their faithfulness, that day after day, they just try to love the people you've asked them to love as well as they can. So my prayer today, God, is they experience a fresh encounter of your favor. And they are able to hear the Spirit say, well done. We bless them in Jesus' name. Amen.